Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, I don't know how I would describe myself as dressed today comfortably. Uh, I got a little bit of my Royce White, the overweight Royce White look uh, going on. Uh, But happy Friday to you and yours. We made it to the weekend. That's always great. And I'm going to get your weekend started wonderfully uh, with an awesome show uh, today. Steve Kim. Uh, will be here to help me talk about last night's NBA Finals uh, and a little different twist. You, <laughs> I can't believe where my mind went and watching the NBA Finals last night and where I took this conversation today after watching the NBA Finals Game 1 series last night. I, I'm a weird dude, and you'll see why here in a second when I start this fire. But uh, also, Maj Toure is going to be here. Uh, we're going to talk with him about uh, Joe Biden and the Democrat and the lefts and corporate media's fight to take our guns from us. Uh, we'll talk with Maj about that. And Scott Drew, the head basketball coach at Baylor University, uh, the 2021 national champion coach, uh, led the Baylor Bears to the national title in 20. 20- 21. He'll be here to talk about uh, his book about Jesus, others, and yourself. Joy. Uh, you got to, anyway, I'll let Scott explain. Terrific book, terrific advice about how to use Christ, even as a coach, but just in all kinds of ways uh, to improve your life. We'll get into that with Scott Drew. Uh, but first, we'll do what we like to do here. Uh, let's rub some sticks together. Let's rub some paper together. Let's start a fire. All right. The problem with North Northern California social media apps is they reward the inept, the dishonest, the insecure, and the power hungry. They incentivize values and characteristics that contradict America's best ideals for success. There's no advantage to proper grammar and punctuation. The same can be said for informed opinion or researched information. The apps embolden the illiterate and uninformed. They bait illogical and deceit. Platform, the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, etc., are stages which induce performance. Performance is an inauthentic act disguised as authentic. The lifeblood of social media is inauthentic acting, which is another way of saying disinformation. Chew on that for a moment. The apps trying to police disinformation depend on it. Social media is the matrix. 
the Wonderland dramatized in the Matrix movie series. Now you won't believe when I started thinking about all this. <laughs> it was all late last night during the final minutes of the Boston Celtics 12-point victory over the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. Boston guard Marcus Smart drained a baseline three-pointer to give his team a 114-103 lead, provoking ESPN broadcaster Mark Jones to shout, the Celtics have stormed ahead. The insurrection has them leading by 11. Listen for yourself. The Celtics have stormed ahead. This insurrection has them leading by 11. No. I'm laying in bed, I'm peacefully watching a basketball game. Why would a sports broadcaster calling the NBA's most important event inject divisive politics into the broadcast? Why would he in any way take the viewers' minds away from the players on the court and divert attention to politics? The only exclamation is the social media matrix. Jones cast himself as Neo or Morpheus or Trinity in the latest Matrix reboot. The Matrix, insurrections. In Jones's version of The Matrix, he chooses the blue pill and remains in the fantasy world maintained via Twitter. Like many public figures, content creators and influencers, Jones prefers The Matrix over reality. He's insecure, phony, dishonest, and power hungry. The social media matrix blesses and curses his career. Without it, Jones would not be filling in for COVID-positive teammate Mike Breen during the NBA Finals. Because of it, ESPN surrendered to the diversity, inclusion, and equity gods and paired Jones with Mark Jackson and Lisa Salters for an allegedly history-making all-black broadcast team for Thursday's Game 1. The Matrix rewards racial politics, but at what price? The price is the curse. Jones has had to abandon reality and adopt a racially and politically polarizing persona that betrays his real life. Jones's Twitter bio reveals the identity dysphoria the social media matrix has brought on his life. His avatar is a Black Lives Matter fist. He's another love the fruit, hate the tree BLM supporter. He's married to a white woman. I don't point that out as a criticism. It's an observation about many of the most passionate BLM supporters. They tend to love the black lives that exist outside their home and bedroom as a way of compensating for moving to all white neighborhoods with their all white wives. I'm not criticizing their choice of partners. I'm questioning their authenticity. The most, pe the, the people most determined to stamp out white supremacy, love the fruit of white supremacy, the white woman, but pretend to hate the tree that produced the fruit. It's the equivalent of loving the Big Mac and hating Ronald McDonald. <laughs> I don't buy it. Ronald McDonald is a damn good man. BLM is a Marxist organization and promotes Marxist principles. Marxism is hostile towards religion, particularly Christianity. Jones's Twitter bio lists a Bible verse, Psalms 110, 
Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we can assume Jones is a man of some religious faith. That faith should cause him to reject Black Lives Matter. All lives matter to Christians. The Bible never addresses race or racism. Race should be inconsequential to a Christian. It appears Jones struggles with idolatry, the root of all sin. He suffers from racial and political idolatry. His, his dominant Twitter image is a picture of himself with President Barack Obama. The social media matrix has tortured Jones's mind to the point of delusion. Two years ago, at the height of the St. George Floyd celebration, Jones tweeted, quote, Saturday at my football game, I'll tell the police officer on duty to protect me. He can just take the day off. I'd rather not have the officer shoot me because he feared for his life because of my black skin or the other dumb ish. I'm not signing my own death certificate. <laughs> Jones followed that doozy of a tweet with another one uh, saying, quote, police never saved me, never helped me, never protected me, never taken a bullet from me. They pulled guns on me, never kept me safe in a protest, never stopped the racists from taking my Black Lives Matter flag off my house. I could do without them. Breonna Taylor, Defund 12. Oh, I'm sorry, hashtag Breonna Taylor, hashtag Defund 12. Now, in previous years, before the death of St. George Floyd, Jones had tweeted out pictures of himself with white police officers, thanking them for providing him escort to and from gangs. Mark Jones is a social media activist. He performs for social media clout. The apps are the enemy of truth and authenticity. Disinformation and division fuel the platforms. That's, that's what I was thinking about at the end of game one of the NBA Finals. I know, I'm really weird. Who watches an NBA Finals game and starts thinking about social media and how it's the enemy of the people and how it's the enemy of democracy, it's the enemy of the truth? But I'm, I'm enjoying the game. I predicted the Boston Celtics uh, to win this series. I can't stand Steve Kerr and how woke everything is out in the Bay. So I'm happy. The Celtics are winning. Uh, they've had this incredible fourth quarter. And, you know, I'm halfway dozing off. And the next thing I know, I hear uh, Mark Jones ranting about an insurrection. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? And then I'm just, why? Why did this happen? And the only explanation is social media. It baits us to be phony. It baits us to perform. I'm talking about all of us. Influencers, content creators, public figures, everybody that engages, regular people that just engage in social media. And that's from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram. We put out fake versions of ourselves. We put out pictures that make us look skinnier than what we really are that make us look better than what we really are. We're all, we're, all, the only pictures we put out are the ones where we're living our best lives 
Or we even saw what, what's the guy Claypool, the receiver for uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, when he put on his crying performance about Dwayne Haskins. I get social media is causing all of us to embrace delusion, fantasy, a false world. It's, it is the matrix and we're all happily inching deeper and deeper into the social media matrix abyss. Mark Jones just beat us there. He'll be waiting for us at the finish line. Hey, welcome. Welcome to this fantasy world that thrives on division and racism. Uh, Steve Kim, uh, I know I went really, really uh, big picture here with Mark Jones, but I know you can handle it. Uh, and so I, I just want to start with just how phony Mark, J Mark Jones is. And is he perhaps the phoniest person at ESPN and maybe in all of sports media? And, and, and I can particularly, when he put out the tweets about, you know, I'm going to tell my police officer, don't protect me, you know, because I, I'm not going to sign my death certificate. And then when they dug up just pictures and tweets from just a few years earlier where he's smiling and laughing with white police officers, thanking them for bailing him out. I, 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 ha, I, do, I don't think, I think he was a normal human being who has been made insane by social media. Well, the, the term that I use is performative wokeness. And right around 2020, that became in vogue with everybody. But you asked me, is he the phoniest guy at ESPN? It kind of reminds me of that saying from O.A. Bump Phillips when he was asked about Earl Campbell. They said, hey, uh, is Earl Campbell, is, is he in a class by himself? When he said, well, I don't know about that, but whatever class he's in, it don't take long to call roll. Now, I'm going to go here. Remember that revolutionary cartoon animated series Boondocks by Aaron Magruder, who more and more looks like Nostradamus with some of his episodes? Mark Jones is Tom Dubois. Remember Tom Dubois? He was the neighbor of a, that married a white woman. And he was very uppity, very suburban. But online, all of a sudden, Mark Jones has turned into Riley Freeman. This is what it is. He's really Tom Dubois, but he's performing as Riley Freeman. That's what it is. And, and sometimes, as you say, uh, life animates, uh, life mirrors fiction, and fiction mirrors life. That's what he is. He's Tom Dubois. <laughs> Do you think, and, and I don't know if you saw this, but like Andrew Marchand for the New York Post, who's a pretty influential sports media critic, he was critical of Mark Jones, and, and it, it had little to do with the insurrection comment. He, he, he put out a tweet saying, look, he was handed a really interesting, historic fourth quarter, and he didn't live up, he didn't meet the moment. And he talked about how there were better, I think he mentioned Dave Pash and someone else mm. who would be better replacements for Mike Breen. I, I, I'm wondering, do you think there's any chance ESPN says, you know what, if Mike Breen can't do game two, let's get someone else in here other than Mark Jones? No, because they're afraid to. They're afraid of the blowback. They're afraid of the criticism. And that, that action alone, whether it's based on merit or not, 
there will be certain factions that will bring up the race card, and I don't think ESPN wants that heat. Let's go back to Mark Jones real quickly and his career arc since 2020. We may be disgusted by his comments along with most of the American public or a good segment of it. We may disagree vehemently with what he says, but in terms of his career arc the last two years, it's actually been a net positive for him. On the flip side, look at Sage Steele, much more pro-American value. She doesn't step to the party line. She says things that are an outlier for what is accepted and then actually promoted in Bristol. And she's had a great career, but she's facing a lot of difficulties because she's on the opposite end of the spectrum. And look, we're all humans. Everybody sees this and they figure, okay, uh, I may not necessarily parlay certain things into a better career or promotions or more money, but I think it's a natural human feeling to say, well, wait a minute, if we're not going to become Mark Jones. I know this. I don't want what's happening to Sage Steele to happen to me. I, I think you make an excellent point. And again, I, I, it goes to my much larger point to take this well beyond Mark Jones. This is the reason I, I brought this up today and, and wanted to talk about it is because this is going on throughout American culture that what's going on with Mark Jones is just a symptom that we're, we're, we're baiting a lot of Americans and particularly public figures into being the worst version of themselves. That's how you move ahead. That's how you move forward. And, and we're doing these social media apps that we've decided are the fact checkers of America and the pulse of America and the public square of, of America. Yeah. These apps are built on dishonesty. I don't think that Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, or anybody else can fix them it's like they're built for dishonesty. How do you then change them and make them built for honesty? I just don't think it can be done. Uh, well, to quote my guy, Ock Nation, there are no solutions. But let me point out someone else, Steve Kerr. Uh, yeah, I had my own thoughts watching this really entertaining game. I need to ask Steve Kerr, why do you wear a mask sometimes and then you don't? Is the virus alive and well in, in NBA road cities, but not in the Bay Area. I, I find that to be strange. Another thing, we saw his hyperventilating tan temper tantrum last week in the, in the wake of that shooting in Uvalde. He's allowed to have his opinion. I certainly respect his right, uh, his First Amendment right to speak out. There was a shooting in Tulsa. People died. By definition, it's a mass shooting. Didn't say a word about it. Hmm. It's funny, the, the mainstream media suddenly walked back their coverage of the story for a particular reason, and we know why. And then also, another thing, Steve Kerr, just pure basketball reason, if Steph Curry is hot, don't ever take him out. I, I thought he mismanaged that game completely. But yeah, Steve Kerr was just getting on my nerves that night just watching this game in several different directions. I, you, you said a mouthful. Let me unpack yes. them one by one. The, the mass thing that, that you're talking about. I think that applies to uh, Boston's coach as well. What is Emi Aduke? I, I, yep. I may screw up his name, but uh, this guy wears this mask underneath his chin 
for most of the game. And, and the reason why this connects is because I'm t- if not for social media, he wouldn't be doing that. At all. Again, why are you wearing a mask under your chin on TV? You look stupid. You look ridiculous. It serves no purpose. But, but it, it's almost it's this nod that people are doing to social media. Hey, I, even though this mask serves no purpose, even though I'm not wearing it properly, I want you to know I'm on the mask team. I want, it's like a little bat signal. Hey, guys, you yeah. know, I, I, I'm on team blue. I'm on team Democrat. It, it's ridiculous. And, and, and I'm just t- in any other world, this would get called out during the yes. broadcast or one of the halftime crews would be like, what is this guy doing wearing this mask around his neck uh, like it's a napkin and he's at an all-you-can-eat barbecue buffet? It's, it's a bib, basically. <laughs> it makes no sense, but we can't even talk about it. Th- these, these guys are making clowns of themselves, and, and we can't even laugh at them. We can't, it can't even be discussed. Well, it's become the world's cheapest jewelry or accessory, um, almost as a social status. But I just wondered, there's nobody in the NBA media could ask Steve Kerr, Steve, there are times you wear a mask and at times you don't. Uh, I know it doesn't have to do with the game, but you're the one coming out uh, talking about mass shooting. So obviously, sometimes you think about yourself as more than just a basketball coach. You can't ask him why he wears a mask at certain times and not at others. And I'm just wondering, based on that display last week, um, someone had to be curious, like, hey, something pretty bad happened in Tulsa. Um, Steve Kerr, what are your thoughts on that? And and I think think that's the problem. When athletes never talk about social or political issues, I feel as though everyone should leave them alone. They just want to play a game. They want to do their jobs. But when you want to go out there and paint yourself as an activist or some sort of revolutionary figure that goes beyond the realm of sports – that point in my view Jason you become fair game Steve Kerr as it relates to the Tulsa incident would prob his retort would probably be well I said all I can say last week it would be redundant <laughs> if I did it again this week that's what his answer would be the truth is though if the shooter had been white mm. and shot up a bunch of black doctors Steve Kerr would have found a way to say something. Hell, yes. the, the, the Golden State Warriors may have, you know, boycotted the game uh, or, you know, okay, we got to do it another day. We're too distraught. But since this shooter was black, and again, I don't know the color of the doctors that, that he shot up or the people at the hospital. I tend to think they were white. I do know the shooter was black. But, yeah, no one's, no one's saying a word. Well, and this goes back to my whole, again, this is why this stuff is so important, is trust me, Steve Kerr, and I don't know if he has any faith or not, but, but in his heart of hearts, Steve Kerr doesn't really see race. He has no problems with black people, white people, nothing. But he's being forced because of social media and because he's a weak man, he's being forced to act in a racist fashion. And, and I'm just, this is like, social media is the headquarters for the KKK. It's where the KKK meets every day, black and white races. 
meet over social media to express their racism uh, every day. And, and, and somehow we think we can fix, we can reimagine the headquarters, as some, but its purpose is to promote and provide a platform for division, racial division being the easiest one. And, and I, I, Steve Kerr, all, all, I'm seeing athletes. Steve, I grew up in athletics, man. My, my whole life was built around football, participation in sports, black, white people, rich, poor people, coming together, putting their differences aside, operating, working together as a team. The sports environment used to be the least racist part of American culture. Now they're making it they're making it a racist. I can't say it's the most, but they're making it part of a racist culture. And I'm seeing athletes and I'm seeing people like Steve Kerr, who I'm telling you 30 years ago or when he was playing with the Chicago Bulls and he would never I don't think he'd be doing the things he's doing now today. I think it's social media baiting the worst in all of us. Yeah, I think that's certainly a factor. But, Jason, I think we have to point the finger at the media, too. If no one ever pushed back on Steve Kerr, uh, that just becomes a pulpit that he's on. Uh, I mean, Steve Kerr should be the new Homer Simpson meme where he comes out of the bushes and is like, oh, what color is the guy that shot? Uh, never mind, going back into the bushes. Uh, literally, we should do that meme again with Steve Kerr's head and Homer Simpson's body. But there has to be a point where a media member, and largely uh, the makeup politically, from what I know of most mainstream media, is liberal slash Democrat, uh, at least moderately, if not fervently so. So most of the times, men like Kerr will be speaking into an echo chamber and there will be no pushback. Um, I actually enjoy the days when you had pugnacious reporters, guys who would be muckrakers that would battle. Nowadays, even the media members are now performing for social media and they all want to be known as really anti-anti-racist. And they say things that, that just simply aren't true, or they make statements that you really say to yourself, boy, do you really mean that, or are you playing to the mob? And so that, that's a large factor of it, is that guys like Steve Kerr are never actually questioned or held accountable for their statements. Well, I'm going to tell you why, and, and you're the perfect person for me to talk with this about when you start to what happened to the media is like ESPN and Fox Sports to a lesser degree became the Walmart of sports media and they ran out the influence and the impact of local media and so during my heyday uh, in the 1990s 2000s uh, in Kansas City. I was the most important voice for every athlete or coach from the University of Missouri to Kansas State University, all that's connected I think by I-70 or whatever, for, from between the University of Missouri and Kansas State, and that included the University of Kansas and it included the Kansas City Chiefs and the Kansas City Royals. The, and, and I don't say this arrogantly, but you know, the, they lived in fear of my wrath and what I had to say, and it was important. But 
the, the whole ESPN and the national voices, the Adam, get, getting the approval of the Adam Schefters or whoever's on ESPN, uh, de-emphasize the local guy. And so once you emphasize the national guy and he becomes most important, he's not in town on a day-to-day -day basis dealing with Steve Kerr. He comes in once a week, once a month, every other month, and then he needs access to you yeah. when he gets there. And so he's not going to do anything to risk that access. Whereas you go back to the 90s, 2000s, there may be a Peter King that flies into Kansas City, but everybody in the Kansas City Chiefs knew at the end of the day, Jason Whitlock's going to get final say. And so they would have to deal with the pushback that I gave them. And so I would light in to the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs, Carl Peterson, light him up. He still had to deal with me. And so, and if I told him, hey, I'm having a Christmas party at my house, my mother's gonna be there, I want you to come and be the guest, he would come, despite the fact that I lit him up in the paper <laughs> regularly. The, all these guys, everybody, from Roy Williams to Bill Snyder to, uh, Bill Self, all of these, they all, uh, Mart, they all came to my house and, and did my bidding uh, because they had to, they had no choice. And, and now, they had, now that the local guy is de-emphasized, there is no one to, who, who's gonna go ask Steve Kerr tough questions and risk losing their access to Steve Kerr? Nobody. That is true. Access is a large part of it. I've talked about that. And too many journalists or media members nowadays, they think that having a friendly relationship is the way to go. That may be true. Um, we all have our subjects that we enjoy and like, but you got to have enough integrity within the job to make harsh, fair criticism when it's warranted. But what I find to be really, really inauthentic with a lot of media members, and I see this in boxing a, a lot, they're afraid to tell their real feelings or the truth because they don't want the blowback on social media. And one of the things that I think you have to do is when you say something, don't read the comments because I don't want to be duly influenced. What I think is what I think. And I want my readers or my audience to know, no matter how big, large or small it is, you're getting my authentic, fair thoughts. You may not agree with it. You may actually hate me for it. But guess what? You're never changing my mind uh, for the wrong reasons. I'm going to go back to that word again, performative. There are too many media members now that want to be liked because they believe that's the easiest way to get other jobs. It helps their bank account. But the actual blunt truth telling that used to be a hallmark or trademark of our jobs, I don't believe is even allowed to exist the way it did, let's say, 20, 25 years ago. Steve, just, I think it was last week, you and I were talking, and I was retelling stories about Andre Risen threatening to kill me, yeah. Marcus Allen attacking me in the locker room, <laughs> uh, Keyshawn Johnson threatening me. About, and, and I wasn't doing that to, to brag or, it was just the reality. That was commonplace, but, that was commonplace when it was a far more 
male-dominated industry. And so the athletes knew, like, man, this dude, if he says something crazy in the paper or on radio, I'm going to see that dude. I'm going to get to be a little bit intimidating to him. But now that uh, we've put, you know, 20, 25% of the reporters in the locker room are now women. And so it that the friction has to be toned down to meet a standard that they can deal with. And that is what has happened. The whole, because again, I, I even, I thought, because this came up about the, uh, the Cone kid in San Francisco, Grady yes. Cone, or what? He got mm-hmm. into it with the the defensive lineman for the San Francisco 49ers. And and my initial thoughts when I saw that was like, oh man, I can't believe this dude went on there and talked crazy and blah blah. And then I thought, well, hold on, this is no different than the kind of blowback I would get inside the locker room, out in front of everybody. And you know, I got this guy's just got to deal with it. The 49ers don't need to cut this dude. They need to have a conversation with him. It is a bad look. Don't do it again. But I wouldn't overreact and cut him. But, but my own reaction was like, oh, this is repulsive. I can't believe this uh, football player is threatening this guy this way. Is because I have gotten to the point where it's like, oh, that kind of friction, that kind of over-the-top toxic masculinity is now unacceptable. And it's unacceptable because, again, we've a traditionally male-dominated space has been completely feminized, and so nobody wants friction. There's, there aren't female sports writers, for the most part, who have any interest in going and asking any tough questions that aren't related to, are you racist? Oh, I think you're racist. Those are the only questions that are, are legal. You, if, if Russell Westbrook is rude to fans or any of that, and, and you got to ask him a tough question, no, no dice. But if a fan does something to Russell Westbrook, does some reporter, male or female, want to run in there and say, Russ, how did you survive that racism? They called you Westbrook. Uh, that, that's about as much friction as we want to deal with. And it's, they feminize the entire profession. And once you feminize it, you move further and further away from the truth. You move further and further away from iron sharpening iron. And, and uh, so where let, let me add one little let me add one little yeah. thought there. Be, and because you exist primarily in the boxing space, I don't think you've seen near the infusion of female sports writers in the boxing space that you do in football and basketball. Yeah, but you know, Jason, in the boxing sphere, uh, there are some female reporters out there. Um you know, and they have different degrees of harshness in terms of their coverage. They all have different styles. But I think in general, you're right that how many Jackie McCallums are there nowadays? I mean, she was a respected beat reporter in Boston. She was tough. She was fair. She was knowledgeable. She got into the trenches. One of the things that she was a former uh, athlete. She was a former athlete. She was not given a notebook because she someone found her on Instagram in a bikini. Right. So barrier of entry is very important here. Back during your era and even before, you had to really work your way up. 
for the most part, you were given a high school beat. You worked the news deck. You had to write on the news wire, right? And then eventually you got a smaller beat, and then you worked your way up to a major coverage of a major league baseball team, NBA. Then if you made enough bones, you became a columnist, but you had to earn it. Nowadays, people are just elevated or for better or worse. I'm not saying it's, it's really a terrible thing. If you have the capabilities of being on YouTube and you want to commit a little time, anyone can be a media member, which is fine. By the way, some of my favorite boxing channels are guys who have never actually been classically trained as media members. But you know what they have? I'm going to say it. Balls. They have balls. Ring IQ, uh, the boxing rant, Coach Malachi Williams. I watch these guys religiously. Michael Montero is a guy. And they go against the grain. And maybe it's just my personal uh, choice. But a lot of these guys get a lot of heat from the quote unquote woke mob because they're more in alignment with the way I would cover the game. But So, I mean, the media game has absolutely changed, but I don't think it's just women that are soft. I actually think many of the men have fallen right in line with this game of access. It's at what I'm saying. I'm not letting men off the hook, but I do want to be clear here. Once you put a woman into any room, it's going to soften things up, period, end of story. Men change their behavior around women, period, end of story. And so I, I'm just, the whole culture, you put a woman into a men's bathroom or you put a man into a woman's bathroom <laughs> and the whole <laughs> atmosphere is going to change. I, 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 I'm going to... Just Ariel uh, Ariel Halani, did I get his last name right? The yeah, MMA, the great, yeah. Uh, again, you you that guy has a pair. Uh, went toe to toe with Dana White. Uh, can can we think in in the last fifteen years of all this infusion of diversity and inclusion into the sports media space? Name and a guy like him comes out of nowhere covering basically a new sport, really aggressive, fundamentally sound. Name me the female uh, sports journalist who's the equivalent of him. That hmm. people pretend like it's Mina Kimes, it's not. No, she no. she whines over social media. Oh, I got a bad email or tweet and blah blah blah. It's not even. I'll go back to like my days, the heydays. Take some. I don't know if you remember, you remember Selena Roberts. Yes. From the New York Times. Yeah. Yes, I remember she her. She was supposed to be tough. Yeah, but all she was really tough about was feminist issues. She was the people she was the one that tried to crucify the Duke Lacrosse team with bogus evidence, uh, and you know, blew her career up in flames. I, I I'm just it sounds like I'm being sexist. I'm just being honest. No it, it's it's we've dropped women into all these environments and we haven't required them to deal with the same things that we deal with. And I'm just sorry if, if NFL players can threaten to beat me up and I just have to deal with it. If they can attack me in nightclubs and I just have to deal with it, that's the price of doing business. That needs to be the price for everybody. I don't think softening and taking all the friction out is the way to go because once you take all the friction out, you're really diminishing any chance of getting to the truth.
No, you're right. And your point about how men act differently when there's no women around, I, I have to mention BDA Boxing, another great boxing content provider I love. They have these large chats, and it's just men. And it's like guy talk with boxing, and some of it, it just you, you wince, you laugh, you cry, but it's funny. And because no one tries to change their behavior. But Jason, you talk about the landscape of female reporting and journalism. We talked at length about this about six, seven months ago when Leah Thomas was becoming the female Mark Spitz, blowing everyone out of the water and lapping people, right? How many female journalists stood up and put the table and said, okay, we're going to put our uterus on the table, not balls, but uterus. None of them spoke out. In fact, ESPNW never wrote a single article for any of their 50 daily readers. We checked. I remember going there at ESPNW. I said, okay, I've never typed in this URL. Certainly was not in my bookmark. And I'm looking like you didn't write one thing about it for months at a time. That alone shows you how dishonest this process is because some of these women, or many of them, had to have played sports at least through high school, if not college, so they're pretty good athletes. They know how unfair it is. They know the disparity in strength and speed and lean muscle mass and all that other good stuff that when you have men compete against women, it is not a level playing field. And barely anybody made single, single or wrote a single word about that subject. Let me give you, let, let me hammer the point and then we'll, we'll move on to approval rating and get out of here. But take someone like Maria Taylor former volleyball player, former basketball player, college level. Hell of an athlete. Uh, she can go on TV and pretend like Drew Brees saying, hey, I would never kneel for the national anthem. She can go on TV and bob her head and wag her finger and go all sister girl, how upset she is at Drew Brees and how racist it is that he wouldn't kneel for the national anthem or he's defending the national anthem, all that, whatever that is. She can go put that act on over TV for social media. But we haven't heard a peep from her about men invading women's sports. Haven't heard a peep from her about this Leah Thomas and all that, if she wanted to make a name for herself, if she wanted to prove that she was just as tough of a broadcaster, just as outspoken and opinionist, she wants to get paid like Stephen A. Smith, will take on a tough stance, a tough issue, do it with some passion and some zeal, and defend women like her from men coming into their sports. But again, th this isn't in the natural, it's not in the nature of women to be that kind of confrontational other than with a man that they uh, are in a personal relationship <laughs> with. <laughs> but it's just, uh, they don't want to do it in the media space and deal with the fact that there will be people criticizing them over social media. They don't want to deal with that. And I, I've known plenty of guys who have dealt with it for, for decades. This was common since the beginning of newspapers. Men, as journalists, have been dealing with that kind of blowback uh, for our entire careers. I, I just, I, I wish, 
I hope maybe there's female sports journalists that will watch this. You know, I'd love to see Ramona Shelbourne go off on this topic. And I say that with affection. I like Ramona Shelbourne. But she's a former softball player at the collegiate level. She knows this ain't right. And, and, and maybe, she, maybe, I don't know what she thinks. Maybe she thinks. But Caitlyn Jenner's on the record. Martina Navratilova's <laughs> on the record. There's all kinds of high-level female athletes that are on the record like, man, this is BS. And not one female journalist wants to plant their flag and say, you know what? I'm drawing a line in the sand. This is some BS. I'm going to be the outs I'm going to be the leader of this crusade. The only thing they want to be, uh, 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 I, I, let me take care of some business and we'll come back and do the approval rating on uh, Mark Jones. Uh, with Father's Day coming up and all the summer events and holidays on the horizon, this is the perfect time to try a box of Good Ranchers. If you're looking to surprise your father, grandfather, father-in-law, husband, this is a no-brainer. Good Ranchers is the place to get American beef, chicken, and seafood this summer. They sell 100% meat and ship it right to your door. And right now they're giving away two free 18-ounce prime center-cut ribeyes to every person that uses my code, FEARLESS. That's over two pounds of prime ribeye steaks just added to your order at no cost. With Father's Day almost here and summer stretching out right before us, what's not to love? This is not the time to wait. Claim your ribeyes today before they run out. This is a limited stock item, first come, first serve, serve and you want to be first when it comes to good ranchers. They deliver the best of American farms and ranches to your door. Make sure you take time today, right now, and go to goodranchers.com slash fearless or use my code, our code. I don't, well, I'm going to quit calling it my code. It's our code, fearless. You're a fearless soldier. Go get you some of this good ranchers. Feed your troops the best American meat available. Good ranchers, American meat delivered. All right, let's get to our approval rating. Mm, this is going to be very interesting. I don't think me or Steve like Mark Jones. Uh, we'll see if we can th throw Mark Jones, if both of us can throw Mark Jones into a dumpster fire here. Uh, job performance on a scale of 0 to 25, you know, I'm going to be completely honest. I think Mark Jones has talent. He comes up with some clever lines, you know, something talk, take him to the weight room, and somebody dunks on somebody, say, oh, he caught a body. Some of it's pretty good. Uh, but overall, I can't be, he's a distraction. That, that was my other thing about last night. I don't want to be thinking about Mark Jones during the NBA Finals. I want to think about, you know, uh, Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I don't want to be thinking about uh, Mark Jones. So I give him a 10 in job performance. Oh, you know what? Now, again, I want the audience to know this. We did not know of each other's ratings beforehand. This is all live and in Memorex. I also give him a 10. I I'm kind of with you. I liked him on college football. He was actually a fan favorite of the Miami Hurricanes because he calls a lot of their games and he's a clever guy. He has good lines. But I just can't get to the point now. Every time I hear him or see him, there's a little cringe in me. And I just I, I find myself actually tuning out. So for that, I give him the bow, Derek. Uh, uh, character. Uh, look, he is married. It looks like he's raised some. One of his daughters, I think, got a scholarship, a volleyball scholarship maybe to Cal State Fullerton or something like that. 
Good family man, it seems to me, so uh, I gotta give him some credit for character. So I, I gave him a four in character. Uh, I gave him a zero. I'm sorry, the stuff he's doing is dishonest, it's phony, it's fake, it's hypocritical. Uh, his personal life is not my concern. I'm glad he does all of that. But in terms of him as a public figure that is an employee of ESPN, he gets a big fat nada, zippo, zilch, nothing. Mm. Well, I'm almost there for those similar reasons because of on in authenticity. Very low on him. I think he's inauthentic. I think he's like the king, the captain of the uh, love the fruit, hate the tree club. Uh, so I give him a one in authenticity. You know what? I even went lower than you. I gave him another zero. I want to call him Gilbert Arenas. He's agent zero to me. Uh, again, he, he's one of these guys that wants to rally and protest in the streets and go home to his gated community. And I, I am very wary, Jason. I'm going to get into trouble with this. If you're going to act like Stokely Carmichael or, or Huey Newton, you better have a sister. You cannot have a Becky. I'm sorry. It's an unwritten rule. I've said it. Maybe it's not my license, but I'm fearless. I'm going to say he gets an absolute zero. Oh, so I should have handed you my uh, he doesn't have Betty Shabazz. He has Becky Shabazz yes. line. I could have handed that to you. And then there was also an opportunity for you to uh, say, you know, he's uh, he likes bacon in the streets and pink toes in the sheets. <laughs> uh, but all right, uh, let's get to it factor. Uh, you know, for a guy that isn't really that high profile, he seems to get a lot of attention for himself. He does it to himself with his the stupid tweets and uh, the stupid things he says on the broadcast. So I gave him an 11 in it factor. He, he overachieves in terms of, most of these guys, if you're not Mike Breen or, uh, you know, Al Michaels or, you know, one of the, how do you even get attention? He seems to get it. So I gave him an 11 for it factor. Jason, there was a really entertaining NBA finals game last night. I enjoyed it. It, it may have been the best NBA game I've seen all year. Of course, I've only watched one other one. That was a 35-point blowout in Game 7. So, but I, I still enjoyed the game, though. I was into it. But here we are talking about Mr. Jones. So there you have it. I will give him a 10. Mm. All right. Uh, that gives us, oh, we both have him at a dumpster fire. And you're actually much lower than me. I got him at 26. No. Dumpster fire. You've got him at 20. Uh, Mark Jones has some work to do. Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit notifications. Hit subscribe. Uh, Baylor's. Basketball coach Scott Drew. Let's talk about his new book. We want to go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation to hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. All right, uh, time to uh, bring in uh, one of my favorite people and coaches in all of college basketball, uh, a guy that I would have to call a friend. Uh, Scott Drew, uh, the head basketball coach at Baylor University uh, in 2021, the NCAA tournament champion, uh, three-time Big 12 coach of the year, and the author and the reason for being on this show, The Road to Joy. Uh, I believe this is Scott's first book. Scott's got a book out before I do. 
uh, I got to tip my hat to that. But I'm going to first start out by, uh, you know, poking some fun at you, Scott. You know, I- I'm just so happy uh, you won that national title last year because it's the first time you've been able to escape your dad's shadow, your brother's <laughs> shadow. You go to Baylor, you're in Kim Mulkey's shadow. And so finally, you get the spotlight to yourself. Uh, congratulations. That's got to feel good. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, obviously, your shadow, I mean, at Ball State, we were at Valpo, and uh, everyone knew about you. So anyway, uh, I can tell you, though, uh, uh, this is my first book. And uh, it, with without Don Yeager's help, it would probably just been a picture book. Um, <laughs> you know, as coaches, we try to keep things simple. Uh, but, but he really uh, did a great job in helping make it uh, a real easy read. And uh, uh, for me, uh, not only... Uh, was it great having an opportunity to talk about uh, uh, the championship team, um, but also for all those that laid the foundation. And God's really blessed our program. Uh, it's his platform. Uh, we call it the, the road to joy. And uh, joy uh, uh, stands for Jesus, others, yourself. And as you know, if you're putting other people before yourself, uh, usually uh, great things uh, are in store from the standpoint. We all want to play and be a part of a servant uh, leadership type a team and a team that uh, uh, cares more about each other than themselves. Scott, it's what I love about the book and, and you and Baylor University is you do get to talk about Jesus. You don't yeah. have to hide it at Baylor uh, and you get to make it part of your whole coaching platform and persona. Uh, could, if you weren't at Baylor, do you think it would be as easy to do that? Oh, it's definitely a lot more challenging. Uh, I have a lot of Christian friends that uh, uh, aren't able to do what we're able to do. And Baylor is the largest Baptist school in the nation. And because of that, we call it preparing champions for life. And it's a spiritual growth. It's academic uh, uh, excellence, uh, character formation, as well as athletic success. So uh, it's it's a four prong attack. And again, being at a a Christian school uh, allows you to be able to do a lot of things uh, in, in a way a lot more visible visible and public um, than you would at other schools. Uh, Again, with us, uh, it's such a blessing to be able to, it's always been a Christ-centered program, uh, but to be able to just share in the book uh, uh, things that we do with our our program, how we uh, uh, conduct business, you could say, and and really how it is so Christ-centered. So go ahead and explain that. Jesus, others, and yourself, how do you implement that into your program? How does it help your kids? Well, to to begin with, um, if you're right off the court, usually you have a much better chance to being right on the court. And if you you have that servant heart, if you're uh, playing for an audience of one, um, if you're doing things uh, for Jesus and then and then your teammates, uh, it really makes it uh, easy to be selfless, uh, to be a a positive leader, uh, not one of them energy vampires, not one of those people that gets uh, upset 
upset if they're not getting enough of their own shine uh, because you know you're doing it for uh, uh, something greater than yourself. So uh, again, it's a, in basketball we talk about the fundamentals. What's the it's the fundamentals of life. It's trying to win the game of life. At the end of the day, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we win the game of life and we're in heaven. And uh, with our staff, we want to make sure that uh, uh, we see as many past players, if not all of them, if possible, uh, because again, that's part of our calling in in the coaching ministry as well. And Scott, I would imagine uh, these are the same principles and tools your dad uh, tapped in to while he was at Valparaiso and had a a historic career. Is is this just, you just following in your dad's footsteps? Yeah, yeah, that, uh, the great thing is uh, uh, following from my dad who coached at uh, the largest Lutheran school in the nation. And again, uh, a Christian school is a Christian school and allows you to pray with your guys, allows you to have Bible studies with them, uh, allows you to spiritually challenge them and help them grow. Um, But really, it's how uh, you conduct business. And what I mean by that is uh, everything is uh, uh, my dad would help his former players before he would talk to recruits on the phone. And it's just taking care of the family and the family are those that uh, have come before us. And that's what the book does is it talks about the foundation and the people that uh, uh, really uh, uh, laid laid the groundwork and the pathway to our championship. And as a coach, uh, uh, we had we had that victory ceremony coming out of COVID. Uh, our players were like, we didn't even know Waco had this many people. Um, but we we had all the past players walk first. So I mean, we had some people 85 years old. We had like we, we got a golf cart for you. They're like, no, we are walking. <laughs> and to see them be able to go first and get honored and uh, get recognized and then uh, uh, our staff and our families win and then our players rode last and uh, and uh, again to see the joy and excitement of everyone to be able to be a part of it but again it goes back to the to the foundations why we do what we do who we're serving and uh, um, how we're doing it Scott uh, Kansas won the national title this past season you won it the year before Uh, The Big 12 in a bit of upheaval because of football to some degree and, you know, Texas leaving the conference or whatever. But it it, it seems like nothing can stop the Big 12's basketball prowess. And, And do you see that continuing in the future, even with all the other upheaval going on in the league? Well, you know, you know, uh, coaches believe in statistics and analytics. And uh, uh, if you look at the 2023 Ken Palm analytics right now, uh, the Big 12 is has the highest margin of separation uh, going into the season uh, than they've ever had uh, uh, in Ken Palm recorded analytics. So, uh, again, since 2013, it's been the best uh, conference in the country analytically, RPI wise, whatever different metrics you might use use. Um, But even with Oklahoma and Texas, when they do eventually leave the league uh, with the new teams coming in, analytically, it's still going to be the best conference based on those numbers. So what makes the Big 12 such a great conference is top to bottom. There are no off nights. There are no easy teams and uh, easy games. And that's what's made the, the league successful. In recent time, though, you've had so many different teams make the final four from Texas Tech to Oklahoma to Kansas to us. And you look at it. We won it two years ago. Kansas this year 
you go back that COVID year that was canceled, us in Kansas were set to be number one seeds. So one of us could have won it or both had a chance to win it that year. The year before Texas Tech loses at the buzzer, they could have won. I mean, you could talk four straight years in the Big 12. And uh, normally when you think of a, a Big 12, uh, you're in football territory and that comes to mind. But basketball, it's been such a powerful league and such a good league. Um, each and every night, uh, you got to bring your A game or you get embarrassed and you know that you're, Scott, you, you grew up in good basketball territory i did uh, I, I, you know i was known uh when i was in kansas city for beating up on the texas schools in the big 12 you, you would you, you ask tommy penders if you ever run into tommy uh ask him about me and his relationship when he was the head coach of the university of texas i used to kill the texas schools but uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on and, and name, image, and likeness and the yeah. impact it's having on college sports. Do, do you see the NCAA or some sort of system getting its arms around this? Or, or, or are you perfectly comfortable with where we are with NIL and, and don't see it as something that's going to disrupt college sports? Well, I... For, for the coaches that I've talked with, I think uh, uh, we all agree uh, that NIL has a purpose and to see the student athletes be able to be rewarded on their name, image and likeness. I think uh, the ones I've talked to are all for it. Uh, at the same time, I think we all want guardrails and with the guardrails, um, it's important we all know the exact rules uh i think the nil committee has offered some of that clarity uh, i know the new transformational uh committee uh, might further assist with that um but this the coaches that that i've talked with and including myself definitely want student athletes to benefit off a of name image and likeness um we just want guardrails uh within that and parameters within that um so we all can operate in a way that's uh, 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 fair and, uh, and and when I say fair is again I think uh, um, how it was intended or what it was intended uh, for student athletes to be able to benefit off a of name image likeness is much different um, than just a, a pay for play and who can who can offer the most uh, inducement to to bring in a student athlete to a school. How about tweaking the transfer portal? Where do coaches you think stand on that? Well, well def definitely, uh, uh, if you're really uh, uh, in coaching, um, you want to see it through. And what I mean by see it through is you bring in a student athlete. Um, why you're not a junior college coach is you like to have them for four years rather than two years. And you, you, you want to see them graduate and get a degree. And you want to be a part of that process. Now, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. And what I mean by that is coaches leave. Student athletes should have the opportunity to leave. At the same time, I think uh, um, what's fair is is making sure that everyone knows the exact windows. Like if you leave, you get this one-time transfer where you're immediately eligible. If you don't pass, if you miss that window, well, just like when coaches leave and there's a buyout and you have to pay the buyout, well, the buyout would be sitting out. And uh, again, I think uh, um, we, we wanna have consistency. We wanna have a roster. I'll be honest with me, every time someone leaves our program, I feel like I haven't done um, a good enough job because uh, 
they sign up to graduate from our program, to have a great experience from our program. Again, we don't have a lot of transfers. Uh, and those that have left, um, sometimes it's worked out, sometimes it hadn't worked out. Um, but I, I do know uh, the parameters in which um, you leave during this time so that coaches know how to fulfill and uh, bring about the roster because you do have 13 on scholarship. And sometimes when people leave, that puts your roster in, in a tough predicament. And for those other 9, 10, 11, 12 people part of your team, uh, as a coach, you owe it to them to make sure that they have a point guard or have a big man or have a wing. And uh, again, uh, we're constantly tweaking, trying to make things better. And I think in the in the portal, we'll, we'll get to that. I think the new transformational committee will get to that. And again, as long as everyone knows the, the rules, um, it's easier to make sure that uh, um, we can all get what we 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 want and that would be for coaches to know and have a good roster and then for players to be able to know when they can leave and what what the requirements are if they do leave outside those windows all right i'm gonna get you out of here on an easy one i'm I'm gonna get i'm gonna get you out of here on an easy one uh i'm picking the boston celtics to win the nba finals because i believe in defense uh, I'm wondering who your pick is for the NBA Finals, Golden State or Boston? Well, I'm going with Golden State. Uh, I do like offense. <laughs> but, but at the same time, uh, I know I know uh, analytically why we won a championship is we were great on both ends of the court. Um, but I just think uh, Golden State has too many weapons, uh, too much experience. Um, but I tell you what, I'm looking forward to an exciting series, and I hope it goes seven games because uh, that, that means we have seven great games to watch. Thank you, Scott. And again, his book, The Road to Joy, out everywhere. Uh, for those of you that are believers, and particularly for those of you that are non-believers, it's a great book. You can learn how faith actually works and will make you better, make not just yourself, but others better, your team, whatever team you're leading better. Uh, thank you so much for the time, Scott. Hey, Jason, it's time we get your book out too, all right? Let's go. it's unbelievable guys won a national championship and put a book out i can't even put a book out congratulations scott all right go to youtube.com slash jason whitlock hit the notifications hit subscribe we have more coming up it's my obligation i hate discrimination raising up your hands for freedom all right welcome back uh uh let's talk a little Second Amendment and gun rights, uh, they're under attack. Uh, Maj Torre uh, is gonna be here in a second, but I wanna just provide a little context. Uh, President Joe Biden uh, talked last night again about uh, the Second Amendment and gun rights and mass shootings, and the media, uh, to me, has kind of transitioned from, okay, Uh, No more, we're not gonna push the COVID death toll anymore. Uh, We're no longer pushing unarmed black men being shot by cops. We've milked that cow. And now we've moved on to uh, mass shootings. That's that's the story, and particularly mass shootings, if if it's a white gunman or some way we can blame white people, uh, we're definitely gonna talk about it. And so uh, Joe Biden was back at it again last night and said that the Second Amendment 
is not an absolute right. Uh, let's, let's hear from the president. At the same time, the Second Amendment, like all other rights, is not absolute. It was, just, it was Justice Scalia who wrote, and I quote, like most rights, the right Second Amendment, by the, the rights granted by the Second Amendment are not unlimited. Not unlimited. And never has been. There have always been limitations on what weapons you can own in America. For example, machine guns have been federally regulated for nearly 90 years, and this is still a free country. I'm glad Biden has moved on to talking about machine guns because he had been talking about, he had been making references, hey, uh, you couldn't own a cannon uh, back at the beginning of, the, of, of this country. And he was actually wrong about that. He'd been fact-checked like by four different uh, news organizations on that and, and was wrong. So now he's moved on to machine guns. I, they've improved what's in his teleprompter. And so he's moved on to machine guns. Uh, and then Biden did what Biden always does, uh, these mass shootings. Well, they're a byproduct of conservative values and Republicans and white supremacy. Let's, let's hear some more from the president. We should reinstate the assault weapons ban and high capacity magazines that we passed in 1994 with bipartisan support in Congress and the support of law enforcement. Nine categories of semi-automatic weapons were included in that ban, like AK-47s and AR-15s. And in the 10 years it was law, mass shootings went down. But after Republicans let the law expire in 2004, and those weapons were allowed to be sold again, mass shootings tripled. Those are the facts. Not sure if I buy those facts, but what I am buying is that just like they had us focused on 9-11 and, oh, they flew planes in the World Trade Center, let's come up with a bunch of immediate new laws and strip Americans of their privacy and we can now surveil everything. And so we milked that controversy and that tragedy for all it was worth and we took away some rights. And oh, COVID happened. And, you know, let's take some rights away now. Let's start forcing vaccines on people. Let's make it standard that, you know, we can sit your kids home at school for a year and a half, take them out of school, ruin their lives. Let's normalize that. And then uh, with George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter deal, hey, you know what? Uh, burning down and tearing up cities and rioting and looting cities uh, when you're angry because uh, a cop shoots a resisting criminal, uh, that's been normalized and it's now perfectly acceptable behavior. And we've like built that into our mindset, like if the police make a mistake, that city has to burn down and businesses have to be looted and, and chaos has to ensue in that city for a week or two. That, that, that's, that's the voice of the unheard. We've normalized that. And so now here we are uh, with the mass shooting. They, they're focused in on that. And I, I'm actually starting to believe they're going to be successful in uh, passing laws that uh, inhibit, inhibit, infringe on people's rights 
to defend themselves and arm themselves. And, you know, yesterday, I believe in Congress is Mondier Jones uh, basically laid out the attitude, the mindset and the plan of the left and how they're going to move forward in infringing upon our rights. Let's let's listen to that. Enough is enough. Enough of you telling us that school shootings are a fact of life when every other country like ours has virtually ended it. Enough of you blaming mental illness and then defunding mental health care in this country. Enough of your thoughts and prayers. Enough. Enough. You will not stop us from advancing the Protecting Our Kids Act today. You will not stop us from passing it in the House next week, and you will not stop us there. If the filibuster obstructs us, we will abolish it. If the Supreme Court objects, we will expand it. And we will not rest until we have taken weapons of war out of circulation in our communities. So they're using kids to justify expanding the Supreme Court and ending the filibuster. So they're using kids and a tragedy related to kids to take away normal practices that have been established and have been used by both parties for, for years. They're using kids to suggest and fight for uh, historic change, monumental change in this country. And I think America may fall for it. And, and I'm not gonna go Alex Jones, I'm not gonna put a tinfoil hat on, but if you're wondering why some people believe like, well, hold on, they propped a door open, a teacher propped a door open, and that's how the shooter in Yovaldi walked in. Oh, and, and hold on, the police sat outside for 40 minutes while kids bled out inside that school? If you're wondering why people are scratching their heads and wondering like, is this a setup? That's why, because politicians will take a tragedy to grab power and they'll use kids if necessary to do that. I'm starting to believe uh, they're gonna have some success in these efforts, but I wanna bring in our expert. Maj's whole life is built around protection of the Second Amendment and uh, making, uh, educating black Americans on the importance of the right to bear arms. Maj, are, are you starting to get worried about uh, the Second Amendment and their ability to perhaps infringe upon it? Um, no, I'm not starting to worry about it. I've already been concerned about uh, the direction. I mean, under uh, the last few administrations, um, and I, I, I'm gonna be, you know, when it comes to the Second Amendment with me, I'm very critical um, of both so-called sides. I'm a libertarian, so I, I kind of get to do that a little bit. I don't have to play the, you know, the duopoly game. Um, to, the reality is, you know, President Trump had an opportunity to pass uh, the Hearing Protection Act when, you know, Republicans had the House and the Senate. They let it sit right after that. Imagine it, you know, then magically the Vegas shooting happens. They don't pick it back up. Right. Um, you have Biden, who for daggone near 50 years has made an entire political career out of attacking the Second Amendment. He wants to he wants to throw out all of these data, uh, excuse me, statistics and data, you know, 
if since 1990 or 1991, where the law that he co-wrote, the legislation that he co-wrote for gun-free zones, since then, over 90% of mass shootings are in those same gun-free zones. He, he seems to not want to mention that part. There's something also that he said, I have it right here. This is Senator Joe Biden, 1985. I am convinced that a criminal who wants a firearm can get one through illegal, untraceable, unregistered sources with or without gun control. That was then Senator Joe Biden in 1985. I am convinced that a criminal who wants a firearm can get one through illegal, untraceable, unregistered sources with or without gun control. So am I concerned about the attack on the Second Amendment? No, because the Second Amendment has been under attack. I mean, that right there, that's 1985. That's that's longer than some people that may be watching the show have even been alive. So Democrats are going to do with de- what Democrats are going to do. Rhinos are going to do what rhinos are going to do. What we as the Second Amendment community and the people, the Americans that don't want just government uh, to have a monopoly on force by corralling firearms ownership into just the hands of the government, we have to be very uh, non-compromising with these guys that say, oh, oh, it's just about compromising or common sense gun laws. That's their play every single time. They say this huge thing, we want to ban assault rifles. They don't even know that assault is a term. There's no such thing as an assault rifle. Assault is an action. They say this thing, they say, well, guys, you got to compromise. Then weak rhino say, okay, guys, we're going to compromise a bit. How about they, instead of just banning assault rifles, so-called assault rifles, How about we just give them some magazine capacity restrictions? That is still an infringement on the Second Amendment, clear clear as day. President Joe Biden also says things like it's not absolute. Imagine saying um, that the American people do not have the right to free speech. We can't speak our mind. Somehow that's not absolute anymore. Joe Biden Three months into this uh, presidency, I tweeted, somebody will find it. Joe Biden is going to be the worst president in American history. Simple and plain. And I got beat up about, oh, it's too early to tell. No, it's not too early to tell. And this is more of an indication of that. We cannot in any way, shape or form have a compromise on the Second Amendment. The data is clear. Less than 1% of all mass shootings make up all shootings, less than 1%. I know the media highlights it, and like you said, utilizes it to push further their agenda, but the reality is, if we start doing things like maybe, I don't know, walking around with a med kit, teaching people how to actually use a tourniquet, um, and not even just for firearm scenarios, for accidents. Maybe if we uh, follow after organizations like Faster Saves Lives over in Ohio that trains uh, educators how to defend themselves if need be in the schools, and these are instructors that already have licenses to carry, we cannot make our children's places these uh, soft targets. So these are all of the things that we have to do to prevent against this, you know, Orwellian overreach, we see what Trudeau's uh, presenting right up to our uh, immediate north. So we have to do things, not be concerned, but we have to be vigilant. These guys have always been what they are. They are asking for a monopoly of violence in the hands of the state. And our people have to just really recognize this. These people are not anti-gun. And I would agree with them. I would, I would destroy all of my firearms today and give them up. 
if the legislation that they pushed to try to get through also included for law enforcement and it also included the politicians and their armed service detail. You can't have anything and law enforcement can't have anything that the average citizen can't have. But you know what? I won't have to destroy my firearms because they'd never put that in there because it's a clear example that they want firearms for them and not for the American people. That is something that is actually written in the Second Amendment and it is actually absolute. That's the actual creation and the reason for the entire Bill of Rights to double down on the Constitution. So no, I'm not I'm not uh, surprised or concerned because this has been the run of the mill for weak Republicans, whether they're in office or not, as well as Democrats in general. So Miles, let me ask you this. I found this story interesting. Ron DeSantis, the governor of, of Florida, is going after the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Uh, they came out uh, with some statements after Uvalde, uh, over their social media, going after gun owners and demonizing gun owners and gun ownership. And you know, support, they promised 50,000 support to some organization that promotes gun safety. DeSantis is going to veto uh, $35 million that was earmarked for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, Devil Rays for involving themselves in this gun debate in any way. I, I, my initial thoughts were, uh, he may be doing too much. If the Tampa Bay Devil Rays want to come out with some woke statement, they can do it. But as I thought about it the rest of the day, it, it, it just like, Ron DeSantis, he's not scared. And he seems to be like the only politician that backs up all of his tough talk with very tough actions. And so I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think about uh, Ron DeSantis and, and the way he's handling the Tampa Bay Devil Rays? I think that Governor DeSantis on one level, I'm gonna be very objective and, and critical and supportive where it needs to fall. I think that Governor DeSantis earlier on in the pandemic um, made, a con made a statement to kind of close down Florida. And I understand why. I think it was the wrong move as he's, uh, you know, championed in a different direction. But I'm careful of the state involving themselves in those types of things, even when uh, organizations like, you know, professional sports teams start to make statements. I do think because the left has went so far that now a governor or a elected official kind of does have to push back because if you don't push back in a space where it's supposed to be right up the middle, these guys have been pushing this way for so long, banking on us not pushing back, not saying no. So I do think there's some value to say, listen, if you're trying to influence public opinion, when you're just here to play sports, <clears throat> and we're not talking about just one individual, I, I completely understand one individual that plays sports using their platform to discuss whatever issues they want. I get that. Their freedom to express themselves does not remove the other people's freedom to critique that. As an individual, I am in alignment with that. But when it's an organization and you're trying to move your weight around and that changes and goes into a political direction, you can't expect to then get freebies on top of that after you're doing things that's not in the lane as an organization that you have to be in. You can just not say anything. 
Okay, if the owner of a team happens to is asked about something, they are well within their rights to express themselves and say, this is how I individually feel about this thing. But when it's an as an organization, y'all already had a bunch of focus groups. You guys are going in a political direction. And when you do that, you run the risk of a particular uh, candidate or even, excuse me, uh, elected official saying, oh, that's how you feel. Cool. Then we're not doing that. And they have no obligation to give you thirty five million dollars worth for freebies. They they have none. No different than, you know, uh, the state of uh, Florida does not have to give Disney any type of special privileges. They do not. It's a hookup if we do. It's good for everybody, but when you start promoting an agenda, you run yourself that risk. It's no different than me. If I say, if people say, well, Maj, your Twitter's too crazy, your Instagram's too crazy. If I tone down, I'm on my third Instagram at this point. If I tone down and didn't speak out so much about the COVID overreach and uh, the, our rights being uh, under attack, my Instagrams probably would still be around. But you make a decision on a platform that is not yours. They are in a state that is they don't own the state. You make a decision and you take what comes with those decisions. So I understand why they do it politically. It sounds like the right thing to do if the if you think that the vast majority of your base is more left leaning. That's stupid because you're in Florida. Florida is not a left leaning state. So, it, it, you know, they, they jumped out there. They messed with the bull. They got the horns. But we also have to be very careful where we're not relying on the state to make these types of decisions specifically because they are in alignment with our value system. Because that can 180 real, real quick when it's for something that it, that we don't agree with. So I understand why Governor DeSantis did that that way. I'm, 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 I'm cautiously optimistic, but I do understand why. And maybe other uh, sports teams will recognize that you're not gonna get extra, you know, privileges when you're speaking out in a space when you don't have to as an organization. That's kind of like where I stand with it. End with this question, and it's a doozy, <laughs> but the, the, the media and politicians are creating the belief that there is a pandemic of mass shootings across America and at schools. And I'm not sure if that's the case. I, I, I think it's kind of a, a false narrative that's being promoted. Then they would say, but even if it's just one example, that's it, one's too many, but I, and I get that. But, but what I would say is that there's a pandemic of kids growing up in fatherless homes, there's a pandemic of kids overdosing on drugs. There's a pandemic of kids dying in car accidents that are all, all these things that I'm talking about are more prevalent than mass shootings. Correct. And, but there's virtually no focus on, hey, let's take away cars, you know, kids are dying in car accidents, uh, let's limit drugs, Kids are dying of drug overdose. But, but on this particular issue, they are saying, oh, we got to do something. And anybody that's against it is a terrible person. And so this is where the question gets really dicey. And I'm, I'm almost afraid to even say it out loud. But it is, it, it is my thought. It is like, hey, look, there are risks and consequences to freedom. Correct. And... A lot of those risks and consequences 
are not good. And, and, but if we want to live free, we have to deal with that. And so the same people that say, hey, let's legalize more drugs, well, that means we're gonna deal with more kids, drug overdoses and suicides through drugs. And if we're gonna have cars, there are gonna be more kids. Blah, blah. And so in order to guarantee our freedom, there is no freedom without the gun. I'm just sorry, there isn't freedom without the gun. And so we're going to have to, I don't know if accept's not the right word, but we're gonna have to be more pragmatic and strategic in our solutions rather than, hey, let's take the gun away so we can stop this one bad outcome. A am I crazy for thinking this? Absolutely not. The reality is there, you know, there's a book called How to Lie with Data and Statistics. All of these politicians are very aware of this book. And some of the lying about data and statistics is to not even acknowledge the actual statistics. So let's give the go to the numbers. Let's first focus on like mass shootings, right? Again, mass shootings based on FBI data, mass shootings, which by definition is a shooting where four or more seemingly unrelated people are targeted. What happened in Buffalo a few weeks back, that falls under that definition of a mass shooting. Four or more unrelated. Now, the one that they were attempting to try to make as a, a shooting that happened in this, this hospital, they couldn't really get that one off the same, right? Because the guy, the black dude that did the shooting, targeted, wrote a letter and said, I'm going to go shoot this doctor because I just had back surgery and I think that this guy's the, the, you know, responsible for my pain. He was on meds, all that other stuff. So they couldn't really use that one. But when we go into mass shootings under that definition, less than 1%, somewhere around maybe 0.5% of all shootings in America are what they identify as mass shootings. So that's that first step. Then you have to look at the next step, which, well, how many shootings are there in America? On average, if there's 30,000, let's say in an entire year, 30,000 deaths related to firearms, what they don't tell you about that is 60% of those are suicides. Are people taking a firearm and defending them, excuse me, and killing themselves, okay? The other remainder of that 40% uh, of that, what they don't tell you is, if I use a firearm or a law enforcement officer uses a firearm to stop a bad guy, they count that death as gun violence as well. So the clear good guy stops the bad guy and now that gets counted as one of the deaths. After you, do, after you whittle all of this down, you get to maybe, maybe, maybe about 11,000 deaths, right, annually. The vast majority of that is violence between criminal activity. So when you get down to the, the brass tacks of it, you, you could say, okay, well, that's still too much violence. Okay, the, to justify, right? Uh, oh, well, 60% being suicides if they didn't have the firearm, so forth and so on. There's an area to try to argue that. It's foolish, but you could still argue it until someone says annually, there is about one over one million defensive gun usages annually, which means every year in America, over one million times, someone uses a firearm to stop a bad guy. This is all FBI statistics and data. This isn't this isn't like my opinion. Every year, over one million people defend life with a firearm. Do you know why that's not according to the 
uh, most of that million isn't in the these many million deaths is because most of those million defensive gun usages are non-lethal, which means somebody presents a firearm, stops a threat, and the bad guy isn't even killed. Non-lethal. So when you look at this balance, 30,000 deaths, 60% suicides, 1 million defensive gun usages, the vast majority of them non-lethal, now you start to see this picture, you can't even really have a conversation about a mass, so-called mass shooting, because it doesn't even, it's, it's just a slither. To your point of someone saying, well, you know, still, children die. Okay, and we have to do something. Cool. What we have to do is look at the places where mass shootings are happening. What do they overwhelmingly have in common? Their gun-free zones. 90% of the mass shootings since 1991 are in gun-free zones. Good buddy of mine uh, down in D.C. from the great state of Kentucky, Thomas Massey, has presented legislation to repeal gun-free zones. They should not be a thing. The shooter in Buffalo, tinfoil hat or not, wrote a so-called manifesto saying, I'm going, paraphrasing, I'm going to Buffalo to kill black people in this area because I know that Buffalo has very strict gun laws and nobody will be there to return fire. This is what's happening. Thing happens in Texas, same outcome, gun-free zones kill. So you look at the mass shootings, the percentage that they are, compare them to the actual shootings, look at the overall shootings and what they actually are, contrast that with defensive gun usages, then get back to this small slither of mass shootings, see where they're actually happening at, and it's clear, trained, armed, responsible citizens that are ex uh, exercising their Second Amendment rights that take uh, not only firearms training, but also uh, first, first aid, uh, emergency response training and things like this. You don't have to be a paramedic to know this stuff, right? These are the actual answers. So when these guys say we have to do something and their solution is we got to get rid of firearms. And a few years ago, they said, well, just the assault weapons. Biden also said a few nights ago, oh, there's no reason for someone to have a nine millimeter. It'll blow out a lung. That's completely false, completely false. But I just heard that you guys weren't going after all of the handguns. Even in that thing last night, he's talking about, well, there's nine types of semi-automatic weapons that fall into that category because it's not just about we want to protect our people and make our Americans safe. We have the data. We know where the shootings are being done. We know who's doing them. Most of those mass shooters on psychotropic meds. But we can't have that conversation about the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry because that's, you know, a whole different left set, set of money, right? Not, not, never mind the fact that they are big daddy when it comes to lobbying in DC, not the NRA, not the gun industry. So when we look at all of those things, it's clear, this guy's lying. This guy's lying. And again, I challenge President Joe Biden. I will give away all of my firearms. I'll destroy them in my backyard. If your legislation comes with your armed security detail cannot have any of the firearms that you're asking all average Americans to do. If you'll say, we want law enforcement officers to also not ha to have uh, uh, the firearms that we don't think are safe to our streets, the, the natural response will be, well, how will a police officer protect themselves from a criminal that doesn't want to follow that rule? Well, that's the same reason why I carry a firearm, because the bad guy doesn't want to respect the rule. So. 
this overall theme of taking away a firearm, making the American public uh, unarmed, monopolizing the potential for violence in the hands of the state and world history has never went okay for the people. And we have to push back. There is no compromise. We've already compromised enough. And it is wrong for them to focus on the half of a percent that we can find an easily easy solution to that they're ignoring to add more rules to a thing that hasn't solved the problem. So no, you're not wrong for assessing it that way. People are wrong that when you use that data and explain it that way, those people having knee-jerk emotional responses to that uh, breakdown, those people are actually wrong and they have more to do, they don't really care about American children. They care about their political ideology that they, thinks, they think that we live in Shangri-La. They care more about their political stance than looking at the hard data and saying, this is how we keep our children safe. And I challenge them all at any given moment, they can pull up on my Instagram and debate me about any of this stuff. I got free smoke for whoever. Thank you, Maz. Awesome job. Great stuff. Great way to end our week. Uh, I hear tomorrow. That means, nope, not tomorrow. See you next week. Off, nothing in life like freedom Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder Making all this moves for freedom I want freedom No negotiation, my system, no relation We all just want to have freedom Sitting on the corner, never been alone I'm breaking my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back We are receiving all the when We all want to be free we want freedom I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want